Hello, wonderful humans. Welcome back to the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Nerd Talk, my guest is Canadian foot nerd Matt O'Mara. Matt is a health professional working in the space of holistic acupuncture, uh, pain, and nutrition, and he's from Comox, BC. Uh, we talk about the food elevator pitch, you know, what you would tell to someone that has very little understanding about food in a very short period of time. We talk about food versus food products, reconnecting with internal signals like hunger and feeling full. And we also touch on fasting briefly towards the end. Matt is super knowledgeable when it comes to food, and I really enjoyed the conversation. We hope the content uh, is useful to you in your life, and we'll definitely be doing future episodes digging deeper into the topic of food. This episode of the show is brought to you by TFC's global health community called Beam Tribe. The pursuit of health is a team sport, and our mission with Beam Tribe was to create a platform that connects like-minded humans from around the world who value making daily progress on their health journey. The platform is loaded with videos created by our team. Uh, and basically the videos we use to share our experience when it comes to things like overcoming injuries, creating a daily meditation practice, how to resolve back pain or how to restore an arch if you have flat feet. Our whole team has had a lot of deep involvement in our health processes. A lot of us are health professionals. And so we just want to share what we know so that it can empower and inspire the community to make changes themselves. If you head to beamtribe.com, you'll be able to see sample videos of things that we've posted. And if you want full access, you can join the community. This episode of the show is also brought to you by our family of partner brands listed at thefootcollective.com who have offered discounts or free gifts to our community and also support TFC by helping to fund the development and hosting of TFC app. We've developed relationships over time with brands doing awesome work and who align TFC on the mission to create products that are good for your health and good for the planet. If you check out thefootcollective.com and click on the Partner Brands tab, you'll see a list of brands that offer you discounts. And by purchasing using the links or the codes, it helps us keep TFC app free and evolving without ever having to load it with ads. That's it for sponsors. Let's dig into this episode. Hope you enjoy. It's the TFC Audio Project. Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. My guest today on this episode of Nerd Talk is Matt O'Mara. Matt is a Canadian foot nerd from British Columbia, and he was kind enough to give us some of his time this morning to have a conversation about food. So here we are. Matt, thanks for uh, the time. Thanks for taking the time and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Great to be here. Cool. So um, we like to start most of these episodes by maybe just starting with sharing who Matt O'Mara is, you know, who you are, where you're from, um, and what gets you out of bed every morning so that people can get an idea of of uh, a bit of context before we get into into food and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I live on the west coast of Canada on Vancouver Island uh, in a small town called Comox. Um, it's a fantastic place. There's lots of mountains, ocean, all the good stuff. Um, so I'm a registered acupuncturist. Um, I went to school in Victoria and the basis of the acupuncture program is quite holistic. So it covers obviously acupuncture, but also herbs, nutrition, lifestyle, everything like that. Um, so I, when I graduated from that, I moved up to Comox to start practicing, uh, which has been great. Uh, so that's what I do for my profession in my side time. I really like uh, trail running and mountain biking. Uh, for the most part, I do a little bit of climbing as well. Uh, but we have a huge provincial park next to us called Strathcona Park, which is massive. It's about a fifth of the size of the Vancouver Island or something like that. So wow. when I have free time, yeah, that's where I, that's where I try to go. And I, pretty much all my training and running and stuff like that is so I can go do, do big days in the park, which is, which cool. is fantastic. Yeah. I think it's very powerful when you have a, 
you know, you say your purpose for training is so you can do big days in the park. And I think having that purpose, that reason for why you're doing the work um, element of training is very powerful as a sustainability factor, but also just to keep you motivated. So yeah, people, I have some friends that, you know, the West coast is the best coast. They all say, and I think (laughs) the fact that very few of them have actually wandered back to Ottawa kind of confirms the fact that it's pretty good out there. And every time I go out there, I'm like, am I in the right place in Ottawa? (laughs) I won't comment on that. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah. So when did your, I guess, well, let's start even with just foot in your program stuff and then we can yeah. dig into where you got into food because um, your knowledge on food is, is quite deep. Um, even just from what I've, I've kind of chatted with you about and you're leading the food team with the foot in program. So I think it'll be exciting to hear your um, to just extract some wisdom from you in terms of what you've learned about food, but maybe to start with, let's talk about, you know, what attracted you um, to the Fortner program in the first place? And so far on this journey, what, what have been the big things that you've gotten from uh, being part of the Fortner program and being part of the nerd community? Yeah, so um, I was originally introduced to the Fortner program uh, by a colleague in town here, uh, Katie Lucas. Cool. Um, she kind of was, I think, in the middle of the program at the time and mentioned it to me and kind of pointed me in the direction. Um, so I did probably what everyone does. I started following you on Instagram and kind of realized I aligned really well with your posts. Um, the main reason I think, there's two reasons I'd say why I really was drawn to the community. Uh, one is uh, in acupuncture training, we get really in depth, uh, you know, pathophysiology, disease, all that stuff. Um, but we don't get as much movement training. I think I did about 40, 45 hours of kind of like a Tai Chi, Qigong style stuff, but not enough to actually pass information on um so i really wanted to have that piece that's very humble of you because 45 (laughs) hours of qigong is literally more (laughs) movement related uh knowledge probably than i got in all of physical therapy school and is like eight eight hundred times what doctors get so um, yeah (laughs) i I love that perspective and (laughs) yeah yeah. it's it's enough for me that i I realized i enjoyed it and that movement you know and in all its various forms is necessary but I, i guess i just didn't feel like i had enough knowledge or experience to actually pass that on to people in a comprehensive way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I looked into the footner program to one, develop my knowledge. Uh, I see a lot of like sports medicine stuff. So I see, I see a lot of runners. I see a lot of people with hip pain and leg pain and I'm really good at treating it and helping with the pain. But you know, if you don't do exercises or movement, the pain just comes back and it becomes a repetitive cycle. Right. So I wanted to kind of help people for the long run, you know, so they weren't coming in all the time. So part of it was definitely for my practice uh, to give me that knowledge. The, the second part was because I really enjoy my running. I really enjoy being outside and hiking and all that stuff. And I want to be able to do it for a long time. Um, I don't want to just do it till I'm 50 and then feel like I've kind of fallen apart and drop off from it. I want to kind of have that, you know, that long-term goal of being active in the mountains for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, from a personal level, like I use a lot of the principles daily just to kind of help. And I'm, you know, I'm still working on, adapting my body my feet still look pretty slim compared to some people's but you know it's an area i'm really happy to work on amazing yeah and i think i think a lot of people when they first look in the footner program think that it's you know the, even the word curriculum is a bit loaded because it's really not like this set of information that's there forever it's you know this the fact that knowledge is impermanent and the half-life of knowledge now is shorter than it ever has been before um you know, it kind of morphed from putting information into a repository that everyone could access to now being more of just like 
we're all on our separate learning journeys and the Footner tribe and Footner program is essentially a way that we can keep everyone on the same page where we can, you know, I always tell people, it's just a way for us to each share our individual research and cross pollinate each other through different professional fields, through different experiences so that we can all sort of have this almost collective wisdom that we all have access to by sharing a platform and, and having a way to communicate with each other. And I think it's, um, it's definitely changed uh, from what it was initially designed to be, but in a much better way where it's more of a, a community of learners than it is a like quote unquote education institution. And I think the timing um, was good because, you know, it almost seems like now we're starting to lose faith a little bit in our major institutions. And I think having something that's very nimble um, and dynamic and changes on the fly as new information comes about um, is more needed probably now than I think ever before. And the fact that um, it can adapt so quickly is, a, I think, the biggest asset that it's got. So thank you for being part of it. And, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's been a fun ride and uh, I'm looking forward to the future. Yeah, definitely. No, thanks, Nick. Yeah, it's, it's been, you know, so I've been a part of it. I'm still working through the curriculum, but I've been a part of it since October last year. And I've, I've honestly gained a lot just from, you know, being part of the Slack group and being able to chat to people. But I think what you said about kind of cross-pollination, it, it's almost like a massive, you know, multidisciplinary clinic where you have access to so many people from around the world, mm -hmm. so many different perspectives. And I'm a huge fan of multidisciplinary practice because I don't think, you know, one practitioner or even a couple have the, all the solutions. So, you know, it's been, it's been really nice to be part of a group where you can, you know, feel welcome and can kind of like, approach topics with it with an open mind um yeah it's definitely it's helped my learning exponentially which has been great and a lot of the times i actually just listen or read i just pay attention to what's going on and and through that i just you know from book recommendations to just new directions for learning it's it's pretty endless so yeah it's been cool. great so far <laughs> cool yeah and i think it being a safe space for disagreement i think is one of the pieces of feedback i'm getting from a lot of the nerds being like it's cool to be able to bring up a topic without knowing you're going to get someone some sort of backlash because what you're saying is different. And I think a really common theme of everyone that joins the community, and I think that, you know, we've tried to engineer it in, in the application process so that people know the values that we stand for, you know, with the manifesto, is just being radically open-minded and not really identifying with a perspective, not going in trying to prove that you know the way it's like let's put all of our stuff to the test and then see what comes out on the other side without anyone feeling completely aligned with their perspective it's like well let's see you know the only way you can learn is to be wrong and i love being wrong now and that's definitely been a big perspective shift so it's, it's a cool space to have you know thoughtful disagreements so that we can figure out the truth because it's um the truth is something that's this ephemeral thing that constantly changes and unless you take the mindset that you're going to be wrong frequently. It's really hard to evolve the thinking. So I think uh, it's essentially turned into a, a self-selecting group of open-minded professionals, which is pretty badass in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like it. That should be the tagline. <laughs> yeah, that might have to be part of the branding now. Uh, all right, let's dig into food because this, I mean, today's uh, episode was really all about the topic of food. We're in the middle of revamping our food module in the curriculum, which you're taking the lead on and very thankful um, for your contributions in that respect. And, you know, I think, you know, maybe let's start, how did you get into food? Cause you have a, a deep understanding of, of food and it sounds like you've done some pretty good research. What got you into food and sort of what avenues have you taken to get you to the point where you're at now? 
um, in terms of your understanding? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a long pathway as most of them are, but you know, I'd say originally the reason I got back into food back in the day would be more from a, a training perspective, which is why I think a lot of athletes or people who are active originally get into it. They, they know there's this component of nutrition that's beneficial and definitely once I was kind of, you know, 25 years of age and older, I realized that, you know, you can, you can up your game a little bit when you're finally not in school anymore and have money to actually spend on more than rice and beans sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's where it kind of started. I was interested in it. I actually, my, my first career, I did a bachelor's in psychology and I ended up working um, mostly with adults um, that were on the autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and I really noticed the profound shift that we could have with nutrition, um, wow. with a lot of their stuff. Um, you know, to be really basic about it, there is an inflammatory component to, to all mental health. And, you know, someone with autism spectrum disorder can be helped, you know, with nutrition as well. And, and that was kind of my first introduction to it. Um, a colleague I was working with did something called a GAPS diet. Um, which I wasn't too familiar with at the time, but it, it did open my doors uh, to nutrition. And so that's when I started to kind of research and read about it. And then when I started my acupuncture program, there's a quite a big nutrition component to it. Um, there's part that's like classical Chinese medicine, uh, diet therapy, and then also like Western nutrition, um, and just really melding those two together, which is really what's given me quite a broad background in nutrition. Um, I, I, I usually tell people that, you know, uh, classical Chinese medicine, Western medicine, from a nutrition perspective, they're just two different languages. Um, they say the same things, but once you kind of understand what they're saying, you can, you can talk back and forth between them. And the same goes for like kind of Ayurvedic medicine and, and all the medicines out there. We end up saying the same thing with different words and, and people's disagreement comes more from, I, I think, like a misunderstanding than any true like disagreement in what the medicines say. Oh, amen to that. I think gaps in understanding is the source of almost all disagreement where we're just not willing sometimes to see the other perspective. And I always have this sort of analogy where you get two people, especially in a space where words are the medium of conversation like Instagram or even email. And one, one person saying, hey, a triangle has three sides. The other one's arguing, no, a triangle has three corners. And they just argue and argue infinitely. And then they eventually, if they just see each other's perspective, it's like, oh, shit, triangle has both three sides and three corners. What are we arguing about? And so it's, it seems to be this thing where once you actually want to look for understanding, instead of just telling people your perspective, oftentimes the agreement is on a much higher percentage level than what you would think based based on some of the conversations and yeah, I think what that first of all, that sounds like a really legit program that that is offered. Is that, is that at UBC? Um, it's, it's through an independent college. So I, I could be wrong about this, but I think in Canada in general, um, acupuncture and Chinese medicine isn't within a university and naturopathic medicine, like people that become naturopathic doctors also go to private colleges. Hmm. Um, so it's all through private colleges. I went through a college called Pacific Rim College, which is uh, in Victoria on Vancouver Island here. Um, yeah, and I was really fortunate, fortunate to go there. I think it's an, an excellent place to learn. Um, I was really fortunate after I graduated a couple of years later, I was able to teach there for a while as well. So um, I'm obviously biased, <laughs> but uh, I think <laughs> it was a biased. really great program. <laughs> yeah, um, they, they yeah. not only had kind of this base of Chinese medicine and acupuncture schooling, but they had kind of like a school of Western herbology called phytotherapy. 
uh, nutrition program. Uh, they now have like a permaculture program that's out on the farms in the local area. Wow. Um, so it's just it, the ability to take electives in a completely different area, like to go to a farm and learn the basics of permaculture or to go and learn like actual, like deep Western nutrition science. Um, I think, you know, it was amazing. And it really, when you're at the start of your education for someone to kind of open all the doors for you and be like, look, this is a huge topic, but here's the base understanding for all of them. It really allows you to then kind of on your own, expand your knowledge in all these different ways. That Yeah, that sounds like a tremendous and like a truly effective, from the sounds of it, education program where you get a broader understanding of the things that actually matter. Um, and I think there's, you know, if I look back in my physio school, there was, a, there was a lot of fat and there was a lot of things that were outdated, but there was also a lot of things that don't have a whole lot of practical application, whether it's working with patients or even in your own life. And that program, as you're describing it, sounds extremely comprehensive on in the world of health in different areas of health. So um, definitely, you know, if I had known about that with what I know now, I probably would have much rather done something like that than <laughs> formal education and physical therapy. But um, that's right. Hindsight's always 2020. Yeah. So hindsight's so, perfect. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's what got you kind of the first step in the door, let's call it into yeah. food and nutrition. Um, and even what you said with, you know, children on, on uh, the autism spectrum, Chris Kresser has a book called Unconventional Medicine, and, and the opening story is one about um, someone, uh, about a kid who has basically gone through and gone through the traditional medical system with virtually no luck. And it's just him and his family are suffering so much because he's just not coping well with life. And it wasn't until someone took a nutrition based approach to his problems where almost all of the significant issues literally went away in the course of two weeks that the family had been suffering with for, for multiple years. And that opened my eyes into the fact that nutrition affects way more than what we think it does. You know, the food you eat affects you in a profound way, um, some more than others, but I think all of us more than what we think. So, so you got that base from school and then where did you kind of follow that? You know, obviously, and it's kind of a weird question, but some people will say, well, how did you get into food? It's like, well, I'm a human, I'm an eater. I yeah, have exactly. to get into food. That's <laughs> it's part of life. Um, so what, so where did you go from there? Yeah. So from there, um, you know, when I graduated, I, I started practicing, like I said, I have an interest in sports medicine and nutrition, uh, sorry, sports medicine and acupuncture and pain. So, and like you said, nutrition plays a big component in recovery there too. I honestly just, because I have such an interest in it, I've just never stopped reading, you know, so it's been eight years and I just, you know, I read books, I have blogs that I follow, you know, I'm, I'm really open. I don't, you know, subscribe to one lifestyle. I think they all have very valid points, which is why it's for easy for people to align with them. Mm -hmm. um, so I've just honestly read and read and read. And then once I kind of knew enough, I, I, I take on nutrition clients separately and I work with them. I can only take on a couple at a time because my acupuncture practice is quite busy, but it's just when you take on an individual person, um, you learn a lot more than reading a blog or something because you have to dive so deep into a specific, you know, pathology they might have or solution that they're wanting. Um, so for me, when I started taking on clients, that's when it even like more started to exponentially increase. And I started to get like areas that, you know, I'd know more about in. Um, and then kind of to help me continue to learn, I find teaching is the best way to learn a subject. Yeah. Uh, 
if you can think of it that way. Uh, so I contacted a local gym in town here and said, hey, I'd like to offer like just talk, chat about nutrition, whatever. Um, I started doing that a couple of years ago, kind of like a monthly thing. And, and just through that, because people would ask me to elaborate on different topics and stuff. Again, it just kind of has really helped me because to teach something, I feel like you need to know it quite thoroughly or at least the basics of it. So it's really allowed me to create this, this foundational understanding of, you know, a, a reasonably broad spectrum of nutrition topics. Wow. And I can't agree more. Like, I think when you, I, I agree that you do have to know something, you have to know a lot deeper parts of the iceberg in order to deliver the simple stuff crisply um, to others to teach it. And I think even when you are, when you know that part of your role or what, how you contribute to the world is teaching things, it creates a totally different lens for when you're reading information because you're no longer reading it and consuming it on a personal basis. You're actually putting it through deeper filters so that you can extract out the things that are important to be able to convey to others. And I think I agree. Just the, the, the lens you look at information through when you know you're going to be teaching it to others is so different and it makes you have, it really builds a motivation for a more profound understanding of those topics. So, um, and, and when you work with people, you know, I would, I think we're drowning in information today, but we're starving for experience. I think Tony Riddle told me that once. And I, I think that when you work with people, it immediately tells you where your gaps are and your blind spots are and how you can fill them which is really hard to detect if you don't actually work with human beings, complex creatures that have all different stories and circumstances and variables. Um, and so, okay, that, that makes me understand how you understand nutrition <laughs> profoundly and good for you for doing the talks, because I think, you know, a lot of people today, it seems like the mindset is, well, if I'm doing something, I need to get paid for it. But what they don't realize is that when you do something and contribute without expecting a return, you actually can get way more of that personal value from what you learn by doing that and the connections you make and probably the people you interact with that will pay you for your services than needing to always be paid for delivering those talks. And I think that's a really, it indicates an abundance mindset. Someone that thinks, well, if I just do good, it's going to come back to me. And I think that's a very powerful mindset. So good for you for stepping yeah. into that realm. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, no, and, and, you know, it's really served me well. I've always been open. Um, you know, finances is another topic altogether, but I've always kind of been of the thought of that, you know, not working for a paycheck, making sure that you are making income and stuff is coming in, but you have to just do what you're really passionate about and what you love. And yep. the more you follow that instead of following a paycheck, the more benefit it has. Um, it's, it's worked out well for me so far, which has been fantastic. Um, but I've been really fortunate, obviously, to kind of follow what I love and then have people that are actually <laughs> interested in what I know um, and come to see me for it. <laughs> yeah, hey, I share that same uh, gratitude and, and also like confusion. It's like, I don't know how things ended up the way they did, but I'm just going to keep rolling with it because it's a good ride so far. Um, so, so if someone comes to you, um, yeah. they say, Matt, I, I heard you're the dude when it comes to food. And I know very little about food, but I know my relationship with food is not good. I don't eat, I eat foods that I know I shouldn't be eating. I don't even know why I'm eating them. I just do them because they're around me and it's something I've always done. If someone is like, can you give me a very basic understanding of some general principles uh, when it comes to food? Like if someone's uh, basically on like a, a five minute, no, a ten, let's say they're on a 10 minute Uber ride with you. You're doing like mm -hmm. an Uber share ride. Yeah. And they're like, I need some help with food. We only got 10 minutes. I might not ever speak to you again. Is there anything you can give me that I can instantly implement in my life 
um, that can help give me more clarity because I think most people are literally just confused when it comes to food and food is such a foundational and at its core simple really thing right like it can be as complex as you want it to be and it's a deep rabbit hole if you want to go deep down but I think the average person as an eater um, not as a food scientist not as a nutritionist but as a human who needs to have a healthy relationship with food in order to have a have a good sense of health globally I think what that person needs to know is very simple Um, and what would you what would you kind of where would you start with that person yeah, and I think that's a great question. Um, and it actually, you'd be surprised how often I get approached in that way. <laughs> um, practice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the elevator speech. Um, so, I, I mean, the basics is, you know, I think we've talked about this, Nick. Michael Pollan has that really nice quote that you see all around now that, you know, it's like, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And we've kind of both adjusted that to eat real food, not too much, mostly yep. plants. And I think that is, that's 90% of it. Um, I think for most people on the planet, if you can tick that box, uh, that's it. Like you're good to go. Um, it's a big goal on its own. Um, (laughs) you know, but eating real food, like just, you know, like eat a sweet potato, not a sweet potato chip. You know, it's just like, it's that simple. Um, it takes years to get good at it. If someone says what is, cause you're right. I think that's a, those seven words slash 7.5. We have the real in there are very elegant, but they also, they also, for most people, require a good amount. I mean, the mostly plants part is pretty straightforward. Not too much is a very general statement if you don't have context. And eat food almost seems strange to the average person because they're like, well, duh, what else would I eat? And I think the distinction between food and food-like products is, is where the low-hanging fruit in terms of education lies. Because if the average person can understand general principles that allow them to differentiate food between food-like products. Not that you can't have either, but you have to balance that relationship and at least have a better understanding. What would you tell someone if they're like, well, how do I know what food is? You're saying eat real food, but what is real food? Yeah, definitely. And I I think uh, the big thing is, is the question is, is it, is it packaged and sealed? Right. And is there an ingredient list? Um, if there's an ingredient list, there's a high chance it's not real food or it's partially real food that's had some processing done to it. So, you know, in, in its pure form, you know, real food is something that doesn't require an ingredient list because, because what you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't um, come in packaging as well most times. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can think of like some animal products and stuff would come in packaging, but for the most part, you know, there's not an ingredient list on that unless there's some preservatives in it. Right. Um, I I think it's fine. I think some packaged foods are like totally fine. You know, like you get tempeh and it's in a package, but it's, it's the single ingredient stuff. Um, I think once we get into the realm where stuff has been cooked for you or prepared for you in a way, that's also kind of stepping away a little bit from it. You're losing some nutritional value from it. Um, So it's, you know, again, it's as with everything, it's a spectrum. You have like your, your real, your, you know, the sweet potato and it's in the ground the best way to do it would be to have a farm, go pick your sweet potato out out of the ground, wash it up and cook it. You know, second best way is to go buy from the farmer. You know, the next best way is to, to go buy it at your grocery store, you know, and then after that you have prepackaged sweet potato, then you have sweet potato chips. And then, you know, it slowly becomes, you can see how it's going from a real food into something that looks like it was once food um, and usually has some salts and oils added to it to make it a little bit more attractive to our system. Um, and you kind of get into that, okay, that's not quite 
quite what we meant by real food anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a, it gets real blurry real quick sometimes. And I, you know, in the seminar uh, at the start of this year, we started this new version of the seminar. We talked about all the pillars and, and the best, my favorite way to open the food section was um, talk, comparing a fresh loaf of sourdough to Wonder Bread and talking about how many ingredients and what some of those ingredients are. And I think it does a magical job of, of just demystifying what the distinction and, and kind of the continuum of real food versus food like product. Um, and I think I love what you just said. I love how you just went through like the whole continuum with a sweet potato, because that really paints a good picture in people's minds. And I think the more processing that has been exposed to a food, the less food, real food it is, and the more food like product it becomes. And I think it's really about finding out, you know, at a pure standpoint, it's like, okay, was it alive at some point? And is it in that pure form still? Well, that's real food. That's one end of the continuum. And the other end is like Gogurt or something like that. Which yeah. Is that yeah. Cheetos. Yeah. <laughs> like who knows what that is. Yeah. And I think just knowing that basic tool, like, can you imagine the world, how different the world would be if we learned, if that was just dialed into our brains in grade six, of how to distinguish food from, from food-like products and knowing that if you eat too many of the food-like products, you will have problems which can manifest in many different ways. But you need to know that eating real food is very important for all pillars of health. If that was taught to us, like what more important thing to learn than what you're gonna eat and sleep for the rest of your life, why don't we teach that to kids so that they can teach their parents and also create a different set of values in terms of health? I think. Yeah, I just think it's a big oversight. I wish I would have learned about food in high school because I think I would have gotten way more into it if I realized how deeply food affects us. What's your? Well, take you're on? more you're more receptive to information at a younger age, right? You haven't developed your your personality. You haven't developed all these like particular habits that then you might need to change in the future. You're kind of more receptive. You're open. So I think you know the younger you can help uh, kids with this, the better off for sure that it is. Yeah, I agree. And then so, so that's food versus food-like products. And then if we get into the next one, not too much, how would you expand on that if that, um, you know, that, Uber, uh, that Uber friend was like, okay, well, how do I know what too much is? Like, what is, how do I draw that line? Because it's very uh, blurry to me. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, the not too much, I think, plays more into like what you feel internally with food. So the other part I really work a lot with with, with people is, you know, um, it's really easy to mindlessly consume these days with lots of things. Yep. Um, but thinking of from food, you know, like you're, you're at the table or you're at the TV, you're watching something, you're engaging in something else, and all of a sudden your food is gone. You don't really know what it tasted like or what <laughs> kind of happened there. And it could have been really nutritious food. It could have been like great food. Um, but because you weren't like aware and you maybe weren't in like a nice calm, we think like the parasympathetic nervous system, you know, this is our rest and digest nervous system. You weren't there. Um, you kind of missed part of it. And we can chat about that a bit later. But the main thing with not too much is I tell people to look, you know, internally, you know, I think in, in some parts of Japanese culture, they have that kind of uh, like 80 percent full mindset. Yep. Um, it just it means eating till you feel satisfied. Um, you know, and they, they have like, there's famous quotes that break it down. That's that, you know, eat when you're hungry, drink when you're thirsty. It's like, just follow your natural cues and, and everything will be totally fine. I think we are detached from our natural cues though. And it actually takes a little bit of time and, and patience to get them back. 
So when I tell people, you know, what does don't eat too much mean? I say, well, if you don't know what it means when I've told it to you, it means you need to kind of look mm -hmm. internally and redevelop that kind of relationship to what does it mean to feel full? What does it mean to feel like satiated with food and then you want to eat something, maybe it's sweet. Do you want to eat the sweet thing for the sake of it being sweet? Um, or are you actually still hungry? Um, and those cues, you know, it can take a lot of time for someone to redevelop that, but I think that is, that's a huge thing to redevelop with most people in their relationship to food. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think we've gotten, you know, it takes time, but it also takes work. Like you have to be willing to allocate mental effort to thinking of how you feel, to reflecting on it, to literally having conversations with yourself about how you feel. And I think we're so addicted and, and sort of hooked on novelty that there's, we can fill every negative space in our mental awareness with something these days, right? We have a mm -hmm. supercomputer in our pocket that's an unending hole of novelty that we can look at any time. And so the, per, the conversations with ourselves, which is where we determine, oh, well, how do I feel right now? How much did I eat? How do I feel compared to how I felt yesterday when I ate? I think those conversations just aren't happening. And, and until people appreciate that, you need to make space for those conversations. You need to exert mental energy and think of these things. And it actually becomes easier to think of them and reflect on them. The more you do, it's like a muscle. You groove that um, kind of pattern of thinking how you feel and it's way easier to do. It eventually becomes your default, but you're right. I think we just have to reprogram ourselves to, you know, thinking about how we feel and how food makes us feel. Because if you're going to do your own food experiment of seeing what foods make you feel good, which ones make you not feel good, but you're not collecting any data. You're not actually thinking of these things. You're not occasionally writing them down. It's really hard to get clarity on, on your experiments, on the results and how you should change for your own benefit if you're not even connected with the signals that your body's giving you. And I think this whole you know, these internal cues, like the feeling of feeling full um, versus external cues, like smelling or seeing foods. We're inundated with food advertisements, whether we realize it or not, right? Like I can drive down a road in Ottawa and probably see um, 50 or so th things, right? Like the golden arches, the Tim Hortons sign, um, you know, all these things essentially are designed to be triggers to make us crave that food, like essentially reach for the memory of last time I ate a donut, and seeing the word Tim Hortons make me want to have a donut, not because my body is hungry for a donut, but because my brain has essentially programmed itself into that pattern. And uh, I think that's the, it's a hard one to explain, I find. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, like here is also where the conversation could go down the path of neuroplasticity and habit formation and how to change your habits. And what I tell most people is, you know, and I'm not an expert on this, but when you look at most people that need to change a habit or ch like help rewire their brain, uh, you got to do it for six weeks. It is, I tell them it's a struggle and you have to mentally put effort into it, willpower into it every day. But after six weeks, you will have likely created a new pathway and it won't be hard anymore. You will reach in your fridge, you'll go to the grocery store and you will buy real foods. You won't think about the other stuff. Like it'll just become part of your life. But those first six weeks, you have to put in the effort. And I think that's where I end up working with people a lot because, you know, they need someone that, you know, needs a, a bit of support or even just accountability or, or they need a group of people. So they kind of see that everyone is moving towards it because those first six weeks are, can be really challenging, uh, especially if you do it on your own or especially if you do it in say a household where you're the one making the change and the rest of the people 
uh, maybe you're not aligning as much with you. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think those six weeks, I think a lot of people unintentionally make those first six weeks way harder than they need to be. Um, you know, I'm sort of nerding out on behavior design right now and trying <laughs> to understand that framework. And it's really making a lot of things very obvious to me. And one of those things is that, well, if you design in, uh, you know, ease in that six weeks by making sure, like, for example, going to the grocery store is the one time habit that you can, if you nail that, you essentially make the rest of your week much easier at home, right? If you don't buy the shit you don't want to eat, you don't eat the shit you don't want to eat, right? Exactly. And it's, and it's, so it's really about finding out, okay, how do I limit my exposure to the cues that are going to want them that are going to require a lot of willpower? Because by the end of the day, if you've had a long day, you made a lot of decisions, you don't really, you have a shitload of decision fatigue and your ability to restrain yourself from instant gratification is much lower. So if you can design in things in your life, um, you know, whether that's putting an activity at the end of the day, where if you're, if you're sitting down doing nothing, your brain is going to want to go to that old habit. If you design in something to distract you, a walk, an activity with friends, I think there's a lot of things people can do to make that six weeks easier, but you're right. Once you hit that, like the peak of the hump and you're on the down sweep, um, and you, and, and once you've done six weeks, you now start to align as a person who eats healthy. I think that's another big thing, right? It's like, if you ask someone, you know, a lot of people say, well, I just kind of eat this crap once in a while. I don't know why, but I just can't help it. And then you say, well, do you smoke? They say, no. Well, why not? Well, smoking is not an option because I know it's terrible for me. Well, we need to make the crappy food in the same category as smoking as not even an option to be entertained. It's something that doesn't align with who you are. So you don't do it. And that's, that's the hard part. But I think when they get to that point, then, then decisions are made for them, right? If you know your values and principles, you don't have to make decisions. They're made for you. And I think that's a big part of food is if you know the big stuff, the little decisions get made for you without you having to constantly make them. And I think that reducing that decision burden is a very powerful um, tool, I think. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, and it's a, it's a tool for life, right? Like once you can kind of have that mindset, you can utilize it in so many different ways. Um, Yeah. And it can just become, you know, not just with nutrition, with movement, with, with all these basics, which are really just foundational pillars. You know, you, you try to align nutrition and movement and sleep and all this stuff, not because aligning them all makes you like perfect, but it gives you the base and then you can kind of go on and become what you want to be in life, but you're healthy and you move well and you're pain free. So you're not distracted by these ailments that so many of society has to deal with before they can kind of go on and just live their life. Right. It's almost like you're, you know, the classic hero's journey analogy. You're about to go on this lifelong journey and there's going to be some shit along the path. So you kind of arm yourself with a bunch of tools for, to defend yourself from all this bullshit that's going to get thrown at you. And then you're set for the journey. It doesn't mean the journey is going to be easy, but it means you at least are prepared to not, to not fail. Right. Um, and I think all these principles, these basic principles and all the pillars are the tools that allow that person to embark on their journey. And, and you know what, once in a while they need some guidance and that's okay. And that's, that's exactly why people like yourself and myself who are deeply involved with their health process and literally have made their purpose in life align with helping others. It's okay to seek resources and guidance, but it's not okay to completely depend on us to, to answer every question because taking on the principles yourself and learning yourself is what allows you to be less dependent and use people like you and me when needed instead of every day. And I think that's a big part of the solution of helping people be healthy is give them some power back and say like, listen, these tools are very powerful. If you just prioritize learning these tools, they're very simple. A 12 year old can understand them. 
uh, you're going to do really good on this health journey that lasts forever. Um, so if someone does come to you for, uh, let's say, a, a nutrition-related help, um, what's the average length of time that you're um, working with someone for? And, and what is the frequency um, of how that works? Like, what's the framework that you've found works really well? Yeah, so um, I have like a variation and stuff that I offer. I usually kind of personalize it to what I see is like possible. And, you know, you have to take into account um, what finances people are able to put into it. You know, if they spend all their money on me and then can't buy healthy food, that's just been a waste of time overall, right? Right. So right. I'll try to like put in as, I'll see kind of, I'll try to align everything to be like, okay, like this is how much time you like minimum need with me. And then the rest should go towards this area. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not here to spend 15 hours a day with people kind of handholding. I think right. like we talked about that kind of leads into people just becoming dependent on you, um, which is not a good model. But so what I normally do is I sit down with them, I get them to outline their goals, and I get them to outline long term goals for the most part. It's like, what you know, why do you want a nutrition consult? You know, is it because you want a better relationship with food? Is it because uh, you want to perform better at your sport is it you know like there's so many different options and I get them to outline like you know specific you know they talk about smart goals which is the acronym there but it's it's goals that are you can kind of then change into shorter term goals so you can have a measurable um, process to get where you want to be and then I tell people okay this is where I fit in um, Usually for people, it's important to see me a lot at the start and then to just kind of check in with me over time. So the first month, um, say they were going to come and, you know, financials weren't an issue. I would say, all right, we're going to see each other twice a week, whether it's by Zoom or stuff. I'm going to create, you know, recipes, nutrition plans, all this stuff. I give a lot of homework, right? Because I'm not creating a dependency on myself. I'm creating someone who is essentially educated in the area. So I expect people to buy books and read books or get them from the library to follow blogs and, and to take a general interest in it. And for me, that's a big prerequisite is you have to be able to kind of learn outside of, the, of what I kind of talk about. Because if you don't do that, again, in three months, you're going to not understand how you got to where you were. Right. Like I want people who work with me, you know, a year later to be like, I got to this spot. Yes, Matt helped me, but... Uh, I know exactly why I eat the way I eat. I know what makes me feel good. I could take this knowledge and I could help somebody else with it. You know, oh. for me, that's like a successful kind of uh, fulfillment. I kind of jumped all over the place there, but that's kind of what I do. <laughs> Dude, that's amazing. No, yeah. Yeah, that was very clear in, in my opinion. And I think, yeah. yeah, I mean, what you're saying is you're not giving someone the fish, you're teaching them the fish because then they can fish for 100%. a percent, and they can yeah. teach other people how to fish. And I think, they don't have to be, you don't have to be perfect in teaching people. You have to, I think a big part of what a good guide or, you know, I called it a health elder, a good thing of what a powerful part of what a health elder should do is inspire initially, because that can help bring people's motivation level a little bit higher. Um, but also just make sure that they know they are the ones that need to do the work. And I think, you know, cause right now we're thinking of how to frame these behavior design consults. Uh, which we want to start offering later this year of just like one-to-one -one coaching and a big part of the first session, I think, and exactly like what you said is build clarity is like, okay, we need to know why, what's your why, right? Because if we don't know that it's really hard to hit a target if you don't have a target. So the first one is just build the target. What is your goal? Why are you wanting to do this? 
Um, is it, does it align with sort of the way we are doing this, which is putting, you know, you don't want to give them all the information. You give them a curated set of information to consume on their own. And I think that's a very different mindset than what's typically done in healthcare or wellness where people are spoon fed because there's incentives, right? Like you get paid the more you see someone. So it's in your best interest um, to see someone more. And I think when you look at it from an abundance standpoint and you want to maximize your impact, well, the path to do it is actually just help people with what they can't do themselves and guide them on where they need to go to do their work. Um, and, uh, and, and at the end, do you do online stuff like uh, digital consults? You said you do zoom stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. I do zoom stuff. Um, yeah, I, I didn't do it much before. Um, honestly, I've been really fortunate with my acupuncture practice, so it's been something that I don't do as much right now, but uh, yeah, I do do zoom consults. Um, a lot of it is a little bit more challenging because for someone that's say local in the Comox Valley here, I would go to a grocery store with them. I would go to the farmer's market with them. I would introduce them to farmers. I would say that, you know, I, there's a little bit more, there's a benefit to having hands on for sure. Yes. Um, you know, in an area that I know, cause even if someone say from Ottawa, say you called, I wouldn't know the farmer's markets in Ottawa. I wouldn't know. So there is a little bit more weight that would fall on like uh, someone from Ottawa's shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I work with that, but I've kind of, I chat, I definitely chat with people first. I don't just like accept people and take them on. I right. chat with them and make sure I, I know a lot of great people. I know a lot of great blogs. Um, sometimes people don't need me. Uh, they just need to read, uh, you know, a good book like, uh, you know, like Chris Kresser's Unconventional Medicine or that Mark Hyman's Food Fixer. They just need, essentially, they're doing everything really fantastic. They just need validation that they're doing a great job. Um, and then just a couple more resources. Um, so, you know, I really try to align with what people need and, and, you know, local definitely has its benefits, but yeah, I do work online with people. Amazing. Well, maybe we'll have to check because if I went, not if, but when I get out on the West coast, you know, we've, our online, uh, seminar and workshop have done very well, I think because they're very digestible, they're very affordable, right? The workshop is like 25 bucks us, which mm-hmm. means that a lot of people are able to access that and learn from it. So maybe you and me will have to figure out a way to create some sort of, um, food workshop that we can offer online. And um, I think that would be very powerful to give people sort of a foundational amount of guidance to, for them to then carry the torch and move forward at, in whatever direction they want. Because some people are willing to read books and able. Um, other people, and when I say able, a lot of times it's just they don't prioritize it enough to do it. Not that they don't have enough time because mm-hmm. the average person spends a shitload of time that consuming <laughs> content that maybe isn't great for their health. Um, totally. you know, D- direction is so important, right? And someone so who can give you direction and just says like, wow, like 10 of those things are a waste of time. Read these two. Um, yep. Man, that's, that saves you a lot of time. And yeah, I think creating a workshop would be, would be fantastic because, you know, most people just need like five or six hours of kind of like digestible, like, material that they can take and then implement like that's honestly what most people need is just someone that's like look all those diets out there you know there's vegan vegetarian pescatarian paleo like omnivore like there's all this stuff they're all fantastic diets if they're a fantastic diet for you like it's an individual thing right and a lot of people just need to hear that and it's like you know people digest foods differently there's reasons for like all of this and you need to like again that's like you need to look inside and be like 
how do I feel after I eat soy products? How do I feel after I eat, like, how do I feel after this? And then, you know, align that with what you need to eat, not with what a diet or a culture or something kind of says you should eat, but like, yeah, what makes you personally healthy, you know, and feel good. And for some people like making ethical choices makes them feel really good, which in turn often helps digestion. So there's always so much more underlying that if someone can just kind of show you, which you can do pretty easily in a couple hours, it just kind of gives you permission to, to explore, I think, on your own. Yes. And it's like you have to play. I think play can be a word that you can apply to movement, that you can apply with personal experiments in any realm, even related to sleep. But I think you have to play, take a playful mindset of creatively experimenting and sort of reflecting on what you're doing and what works. Because I think pleasure is this realm of food that's kind of gotten wrecked by food-like products because a lot of the very pleasurable foods are oftentimes foods that were engineered to be like that and that don't make us feel very good and aren't very good for our health. But there can be immense pleasure gained from preparing food, from helping prepare food for other people, for your family, from consuming amazingly nutrition-dense, tasty foods. Like the other day I was eating dates on a walk and I was like, oh my God, these are this is the best candy I've maybe <laughs> had in recent memory or ever. And it's like, I, I just wish that people knew that the things that nature makes are actually tremendous if you know how to prepare them in a very simple way or even just know where to access the good stuff. And I know that my perception on how much money I spend on food has completely changed um, where I spend way more money on food because I know how much more important it is than it, than I used to think it was. Yeah. Right? And I think it's, because uh, if you don't deem something as important, you're not, not going to spend your money on it. But when you think it's important, it's a complete mindset shift. Yeah, no, that's totally true. And I, you know, that it's that kind of like thought that like you are what you eat, right? Like literally what you take in yep. breaks down into the micronutrients that build your cells up again. So, you know, you, you literally do become it. So I think, you know, eating food that's like whole and your body recognizes, you know, and can bring in and, and nourish your cells, of course it creates vitality, right? Like there's just no way that it doesn't. Yeah, and I think one thing that you, we, you mentioned, uh, I think it was in um, one of the excerpts that you were writing that you posted in Slack that really gave me insight into how shallow my understanding was, was that when you're actually switching to whole natural foods, there is still an adaptation period, right? This massive population of organisms that line your gut need to adjust to the new foods you're eating. If you're eating a bunch of raw foods, you have to know that there's, there's, a, there's an adaptation period, just like in anything else. Um, can you speak to that when people are you know, making radical dietary shifts, which anything radical is probably not going <laughs> to go well immediately? Um, yeah. But if people really want to change, like, like, what are your thoughts on the amount of time or, or kind of the process of your body adapting to a new type of food? I think there's something there that I definitely was missing and that most people don't understand. Yeah. And I think, um, so we kind of talked about a couple different components here, you know, like there's the nutrition side, the looking inward side. And I think a big part of this is like, Hey, like what is your digestive system? Like, like, mm -hmm. can it handle a lot of fiber? Can it, can it handle, like you eat a really nutrient dense, a piece of food, does your body actually absorb the nutrients from that or does it pass right through? So, you know, the, the third component that we, you know, really always need to look at is, is how, how can we help your digestive system run optimally? Um, you know, if you've consumed, you know, lots of sugars and fats and oils, you know, your body is amazing at uh, adapting 
and fixing itself, but you need to give it time to readapt for the gut bacteria to shift. You know, for something like sometimes your stomach acid is too low or too high, or there's there's issues there. If your stomach acid isn't acidic enough, uh, you just don't break down food that well. Um, and then, it, you know, you're just not going to absorb it that well. And then if your gut bacteria, if you don't have like enzymes and the right bacteria, uh, you're going to feel really bloated and, you know, all this stuff kind of happens. And uh, it honestly does take a couple months for some people. Um, I think one of the more challenging shifts people go through is to go like really hard into like a, a vegan lifestyle because you see a lot, you know, some plant foods are pretty, like they're really hard to break down. We see a really large increase in fiber, um, which isn't a problem, but it, it, it hurt, it's tough on the digestive system. It makes you feel kind of garbage for a couple, you know, a couple of weeks. People like term it, like maybe that's detoxing, they'll term it. Um, you know, it has a lot of different like phrases that are attached to it, but essentially it's your body's adaptation time. Uh, and that's why it's important for everyone to, you have to give it time and and depending on where your digestive system is at, you know, which is, you know, includes what's your stress level at, where's your sleep at, where's all this stuff at, you know, then you can kind of roughly estimate how much time it'll take for your body to adapt to something, something new. Um, what I usually tell people is, hey, if you want to eat like whole healthy foods, uh, you know, and you want not too much digestive upset, you know, uh, nutrient dense carbohydrates like quinoas, you know, sweet potatoes, like the winter squashes, that kind of stuff. For the most part, those are digested pretty well. So that's always a pretty good place to start is just having higher quality starches or carbohydrates on your plate. So transitioning from, you know, chips and fries and that kind of thing to, to the quinoas, to the rices, to that kind of stuff is always a good place to start because it tends to be the most, the easiest to adapt without issue. Amazing. Yeah. And I think these helpful, these like starter tips of just like, okay, you've consumed shitloads of information and you've gotten these little gems. Giving those gems to people is very powerful because it, mm -hmm. you know, most of those people aren't willing to do the same amount of research. And if they can just take those things, sometimes those are the dominoes that can help them get some wins, right? Like to try something, have it feel good. Um, and then kind of bring that forward and either seek out more information. Like they need to feel that food is important, right? Whether that's making it relevant that your mood has a, is heavily impacted by the food that you eat, that your energy levels are heavily impacted by the foods you eat. Um, getting them to reconnect with these internal feedback mechanisms, like your poo. Okay. No one talks about this. It's a shitty topic, but guess what? It's, it's, it's huge. Really yeah. <laughs> important. That's your primary feedback of how your body is digesting food, how it's accepting it, how, you know, whether what you just ate was even recognized as food. Um, and so I think, you know, we'll keep it fairly shallow on this episode as like an intro, but I think it would be really fun to do like a monthly episode to share deeper and deeper layers when it comes to food, because food is simple at its core. And I think some of the principles speaking, people need to understand are simple, but I also think that there's more layers of depth that as people's understanding improves, they would be keen to go a little bit deeper and understand, okay, what's the next layer? What's the next layer that I can embark on understanding and working to experience? Because unless you know food affects your energy and mood, it's not even something on your radar, right? It's not even something that can act as a positively reinforcing part of your experience to show that what you're doing is helping. Um, and I think it's, it's weird how we've just disconnected from food and look at it as things we put in our mouth because we have to, or because it tastes great and disconnected from all the really important bits that it plays into. 
Yeah, exactly. And I, I honestly think like the, the calorie model, the way of thinking of food as calories is, is not the best invention um, for many reasons. But I mean, it, like eat 2000 calories of potato chips versus like nutrient dense plants and other foods. Um, you know, from a basic understanding that it's be like, oh, well, you got 2000 calories, you're good, tick the box, your day is done. Whereas like your internals and the way you feel like if they're going to be very different, right? Like, yes. man, if I, if I ate 2000 calories of potato chips, I would need like a nap and a lot of water. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like my entire yeah. day would be shot pretty much. Yeah. Um, and I think people, you know, when they're needing to adapt out of there, I think like even looking into like different, like mental health stuff, like if you wake up in the morning and consume food that makes you feel tired and kind of off, kind of shitty, um, like how can you excel in your day? Like, right. and it's not that you just, it's not that you haven't set yourself up for success. It's that you, you don't know like how good it can be. Like how much nicer is it to wake up, um, you know, have a glass of water, eat some nutrient dense food, and then feel like you have energy and the ability to take on the day with kind of like optimism and this kind of, and that can all come from food. You know, there's mindset and stuff that plays into it too. But if you eat the right foods, uh, and energize your body while your body feels like it is adapted and that it is resilient and can kind of handle what the day will throw at it. Well, that, that's good. And that is good to have that internal feeling because, you know, the world does throw a lot at us and the more resilient we feel, the, the better we are kind of adapted to take on the day. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, it's the, in my mind, there's all these free superpowers that are floating around out there that no one knows to grab. And the only thing stopping them from grabbing them is awareness. If someone hasn't explained it in a way that resonates with them, that's understandable and implementable. You know, things like sleep, things like having a daily mental fitness practice, things like eating real food without even changing how much money you're spending on food. These are free superpowers that literally you can feel like a superhuman if you just change some of your behaviors, right? And I think it, when people, because you hear these dramatic stories, I get emails sometimes where people are like, oh my God, I didn't know this stuff and this is so incredible. My life has changed. And, and obviously that's the, those are the extreme outlier cases, but I think a lot more people are having these big realizations where you don't know how good you can feel until you're open-minded to trying things that might make you feel that good. And then you look back, you're like, how the hell did I go this long in my adult life without even trying these simple things and seeing how good I feel. Um, and totally. I think that's, that's part of, that is what convinces people that you can't change someone's mind. They can only change it themselves. And when you give them radical perspective shifting experiences where they feel totally different, then it's like, you don't have to do anything. Then it's just, you have to just give them what they're asking you for now because they want to learn more. They want to do more, but it's that first step. That's the hardest one to get people to take. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think, you know, it's always once people take that step, though, if they align with uh, what the stuff is, I, they really take it on and they really engage in it. And it's, you know, you know, personally, as like a practitioner, it's really satisfying to see someone internalize like all these incredible core values, um, mm -hmm. because you see the change it makes in their life, you know, and in all areas of their life. Um, and I think that's kind of, that's one of the other reasons why I like this, you know, the TFC community is because, you know, everyone is working together to kind of like help create like a bigger shift, you know, like people can be healthy, people can feel good and energetic, like all this stuff, you can, you can work hard and have a stressful job and still feel good at the end of the day with the right practices and the right tools in place. You know, and I think that's really powerful to know that. 
Yeah, and I think fundamentally it is an identity um, change, right? It's not just I'm eating a bit better. It's like I now identify as a person who values health as a core value that I prioritize. And then that colors everything they do. And I think, you know, that, and like you said, the big mission at TFC is to um, help create positive change in health culture. And that's a very sweeping term, but I really think health culture is like trickles into everything we do, every behavior we do, the way that we think, the way we interact with ourselves and others and the environment and um, all of these little things that we can improve in terms of awareness, right? If someone just has an understanding and has a bit more awareness of what they can do, what they are capable of changing to give them these massive frame shift results sometimes, um, awareness is the like rate limiting step, I think. Yeah. And the beautiful thing is that awareness can be spread through platforms like social media, which are free and accessible. And it, it, people just have to know how to curate the right you know, sources of information. And then you basically have this massive research tool that's free. It's pretty cool. No, and it, you know, it's, it's never been more accessible information, which is, you know, a good and bad thing because you need to know how to search through the information. You know, you have to weed through a lot of stuff to get to the good stuff. Um, you know, I, and just kind of chat on that. I think like our bodies have like, you know, positive feedback loops and negative feedback loops. And I think our lifestyles kind of reflect that. I, I think as soon as you start making positive changes, whether it's, well, I'm, you know, you engage in some different nutrition practices or you engage in some different foot health practices, you know, it does create that feedback where, well, that feels good. So I'm going to try something else. So that also feels good. And, you know, it kind of is this really beautiful cycle where, it becomes something where you've started by just, you know, uh, going barefoot a little bit more or just, uh, you know, drinking water in the morning instead of pop. And it, it ends up where you end up is, you know, as a healthy, you know, more complete human being that's like just resilient in nature. And I think helping people understand that once you kind of tip that rock over the edge, once you've kind of done enough to push it, your body responds in a way that just allows you to keep growing and being interested in growing and I think uh, that's kind of our job is to help people just get them far enough over the edge where that internal motivation builds up enough to keep them going. Yep. I agree. And it's so powerful. And it's, it's funny too. the, you know, the thing that gets it started, the first domino, or I like to call it the on-ramp on the health freeway. It's like, it can be so different for so many people and it can actually be really small for some people, right? Like I know a guy that literally his on-ramp was going from eating six pops a day or drinking six um, cans of pop a day to three. He didn't even stop drinking pop. He just drank less and saw how big of a change he felt. And that was his on-ramp. And now he's like, now pop isn't even on his spectrum of options. Like it's not even something he's like, I wouldn't, I'm not the kind of person that drinks pop anymore. It's not that I have to try and not drink it. It's like, I don't even identify as that person anymore. Um, Yeah. And it's really cool. Another, so I'm going to come out of, kind of sort of do a little bit of a pivot here. But one thing I'm really curious yeah. to hear your take on is, you know, every time I do a post about fasting, um, just like a fairly general educational post, it creates a shitstorm of people get very emotional. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on or, or your understanding of fasting, um, whether you implement any kind of fasting practices or recommend them to your clients. And because I think I think the fundamental problem is that the word fasting brings about the wrong assumptions and what people think of that word. So what are, what are your thoughts on fasting? 
Yeah, um, you know, fasting, I think, is an excellent tool. It's, uh, we all do it, right? We all fast because when you sleep at night and wake up in the morning, you, you know, break the fast, you have breakfast. Right. Um, so it's like intrinsically built into our, so I think like as a basis tool, uh, we all do it and it's, it's really excellent. I think there is a difference between, um, you know, the male and female sexes. And I don't know too much about like people um, beyond that, but I like it the males tend to respond like well to fasting. Like there's an adaptation that we have that we tend to be able to fast for longer. We tend to be able to, to shift into, you know, kind of like a, a lean muscular mode if we fast for long periods of time, um, you know, like 16, 18 hours a day, which is, you know, excellent. Um, and, you know, there's lots of theories that maybe that's, you know, when back in the day when men were hunting, that was like an adaptation to help them. Um, mm -hmm who knows whereas females tend to do better with kind of like that 10 to 12 hour fast hmm. um there's a really you know just to point people down a direction um for fasting there's a really excellent book on on female nutrition because you know f the female sex and the male male sex nutrition uh the way it, it it's it should be totally different there's like different ways that things are metabolized uh, females have like a monthly hormonal cycle that men don't have as much of, even right. though we do have like a bit of a cycle that happens. Um, and so I think like a lot of nutrition information needs to be kind of like, you know, split at least, at least twice, if not many more ways. Mm -hmm. um, but I do recommend that most females uh, read a book called Roar, R-O-A-R by Dr. Stacy Sims. She's out of New Zealand. Cool. She talks in depth about kind of more the, she's more on the female athlete mindset. Um, but her stuff is applicable to, to any female and she has, you know, really good strategies for perimenopause and, and all these sort of things that you just don't see come up in the normal literature because most nutrition science is based off males. Um, and it just doesn't flip back and forth. So I think, you know, in terms of like a general recommendation on fasting, you know, males tend to do better. And I say tend to, because everyone has an individualized experience with it. Right. I think why we see arguments in social media and stuff is because I will say that males tend to do better with 16 hour windows. And, and I'm sure that there are females out there that do really well on 16 hour windows and they will feel like maybe they're not being represented yep. um, or vice versa, you know? Um, and I think it's really important to know that you, people have an individual experience and these are like just kind of really broad kind of scope recommendations that are just what they see in the science. Um, yeah. But yeah, so males do better with longer fasting windows, tends to promote a lot of beneficial effects in the body. Females do well with fasting windows more in the 10 to 12 hour window. Um, but honestly, people have to, I encourage them to try it for themselves. Um, you know, it's just, it's pretty easy. You wake up in the morning, have a great big glass of water, um, you know, and a half an hour later, have a coffee if that's your thing, and then eat again when you feel hungry. Right. It, it, it's that easy. Right. And that can be two hours later. It can be four hours later. Um, but it just kind of helps your body. The more, the more time you space between meals, the more time your body has to repair the digestive system. Cause eating food is like damages the digestive system. It has to be repaired each time. Right. And then when the digestive system is repaired, the body can fix other stuff that's going on if you're constantly intaking food, like every half an hour, your digestive system is constantly running. And it's just, it's a lot of energy to do that in the body. And this is obviously, you can tell a really big discussion that we don't have to go into today, but. Right. No, but it's, it always seems to garner a lot. And I think everyone's got a different lens. Everyone has a different perception of what fasting means. Um, you know, I've, 
I, sometimes people ask me how I eat and I almost hesitate to ever tell them because it's, it's very strange. And it's just something that I've literally experimented with for the past two years and found a groove that works really well, where it maximizes my energy. It makes me feel really good during the day. Um, you know, I eat between three and seven. It's like an eating window where I'll, I'll graze and have a big meal between those times and will only drink water um, at other times and, and coffee. And sometimes I'll have like some nuts or something like that, but it's really people need to feel comfortable and confident that they are capable of doing their own experiments. And the first level experiment for some people, like you said, might be see how far you can push off your first meal one day and see how that makes you feel. And I know for me, that's always a really powerful, you know, fasting in whatever time period I'm, I'm picking is a powerful way to reset my relationship with food. If I find I'm going down kind of a, the wrong path of just eating shit food and like finding myself not doing the right things, it's a nice way to recalibrate my hunger signals by just differentiating between, am I actually hungry? Like, do I, do I just want to eat this? Cause I just saw someone eat it or do I actually feel hungry? And sometimes like, well, I'm going to drink a glass of water and then I'll re reassess. And then it's like, Oh, actually I'm not hungry. I just wanted to eat that because I saw someone eating something delicious. And that's what made me feel like it was the mental aspect of hunger, not the physical aspect. So I think uh, we could probably do a whole yeah i know it could go really deep and i was just thinking too like uh a lot of hunger cues can be dehydration signals so it is good for people to drink a glass of water when they're feeling hungry first because if you haven't recognized your initial thirst cues uh your body sometimes just kind of it shows up as a hunger cue but you're really just thirsty yeah exactly all right well i know that you've got uh patients coming in and i want to be respectful of your time so maybe we can um wrap up this episode by just talking about a couple of the powerful habits that you've got maybe a couple habits that you do every day or have dialed in that you find have a really significant positive impact on the rest of your day and i you know i call these keystone habits i'm not sure where i got that term from i definitely took it from somewhere (laughs) Um, but maybe share some of those and then at the end we'll talk about you know if people want to get in touch with you or see what you're doing um where they can reach you because i think in the world of zoom um someone that listens to this podcast in australia that has a lot of problems with their relationship with food and is not having a lot of luck finding someone and i only use australia because um my girlfriend olivia was using was having a lot of problems um, with her with her skin and she thought it might be related to food. And she literally found a guy in Australia that seemed to understand this kind of like complex problem she was trying to solve and two appointments with him and she solved the problem. So now you're not limited by your local community with digital communication. Um, so at the end, we'll make sure we mention that. But yeah, keystone habits. If you had a couple of habits that you're, you're like, what are two things that help you have a good day each day? What would they be? Yeah. So, um, I, so I have a young son, two years old. Um, so like, honestly, the, the, I mean, the best way for me, we, you know, we talk about grounding habits. I like to think of it as ways to help put your, keep your nervous system at rest at the rest and digest state. That's a really beautiful state for your nervous system and your body to be in because it functions well. So I think any good habit, and you'll see it with all of them is some sort of grounding, like, you know, ritual or thing in the morning. So for me now, uh, it's just kind of waking up with my young son. I usually make a cup of coffee and we often kind of walk out to the garden or we play with his trains or, but I mean, nice. he wakes up kind of like 6.30 in the morning, 6.37. So I usually have like a couple hours before I have to get to work, which I've purposely set up that way because I want to spend time there in the morning. Um, but it's honestly just spending like an hour with him um, you know, and my wife 
uh, just kind of like having coffee and hanging out. It's just like kind of this really joyful time in the morning. And, you know, with the weather like this right now, sometimes we'll just be outside, sometimes we'll be inside. But for me, that's like the, the big keystone habit that I currently do. And I, I think there's always, they're always adapting and changing, you know, pre kids, it obviously looked different. Um, but for me right now, that is a big one. Uh, the other one is, you know, uh, being a parent and being a parent of like a young kiddo uh, with, you know, another on the way, it's, it's something like movement is, is really important for me. Um, so I try to engage in it. Um, and people out there that are also parents will know this with young children. You, you don't like, I don't end my workday and necessarily have like an hour to go to the gym or something right. like that. Like it's, yeah. you know, you, you go home and you're, you're integrated in family life and, and that's what I prefer anyway. Um, so it's more about, you know, I think, um, you know, Katie Bowman, who I'm sure you've chatted with Nick, uh, she has great stuff that's, you know, it's like the stack your life, just like uh, movement is not something that you do for an hour in a day and then you don't do. Movement is this integration of stuff that happens throughout the day right. and choices that you make. So I choose to walk to work, to bike to work. Uh, when I have a break at work, I, I go for a walk. Um, sometimes my balance beam is at the office and I'll play around on that. But the, so the other big keystone habit for me is I engage in movement like whenever there's an opportunity to do it. Um, you know, and in the evenings, it's the same thing. Once my son goes to bed, uh, spend quality time with my wife, but still trying to, you know, if I can engage in movement, I'm, I, I'm not big. We don't, we have like a small TV with a bit of Netflix kind of thing, but I, I also try to like move away from that. Like just, I create opportunities for movement, not opportunities for like being passive, if that makes sense. Amazing. Well, yeah. oh, those are great habits. And I think, you know, taking away the barrier from movement as this extra thing we need to do as a supplement and bring it back into like part of everyday life um, is very powerful. And I haven't spoken with Katie on the podcast yet or in person, but she's definitely someone I'd love to talk to eventually. And her book is um, in the uh, foot, both two books, I think now are in the Footner program core curriculum. And she's just great at breaking down complex topics into very digestible ways. So um, congrats on the next little guy on the way. I'm sure you'll be, you know, I'm sure that morning routine will be able to continue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it'll be interesting. The first uh, couple months are always who knows what's going to happen. But you yeah. know, I think, uh, you know, and, and children mirror you too. Um, and not that I'm an expert again on that. But, you know, just like adapting our, our son is now quite calm in the mornings. And he really looks forward to like just playing and interacting. And you can tell that he gets, you know, he himself gets a lot from it as well. And I think you can kind of see, right, you can kind of see the process starting where he will have this habit or this system built into him where he knows that having like chill mornings with family is like a good way to reset his nervous system. So, you know, it's, you can see that it's also giving him skills to, uh, to adapt and change as he grows as well. Amazing. Yeah. You're, you're creating his template for what life is like and you're creating yeah, exactly. a very healthy template. And I think the best way you can help your kids with their health is be healthy because you're right. They absorb everything you do and you are literally creating a template for the kind of lifestyle they feel is the lifestyle when they grow up. So um, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Uh, where can people reach you if they have questions or, or want to see any information uh, that you post? Yeah. So um, the, the best way to reach me, um, so you can, my Instagram account there is Omera Outside um, and the nutrition company I run is called The Wild Ibex. Um, so you can find The Wild Ibex is online, thewildibex.ca. 
Um, just so people know, I, I love to take on new clients and I love to chat with people. I do limit it to about five people per month just to other um, stuff, but uh, they're welcome to reach out um, either direct message on Instagram or there's email links on the website. Um, and I'm happy to chat and set up stuff. Uh, I do take a waiting list. Um, so if, you know, if I'm the person, people they feel they align with um, and they're happy to wait, it's great. Uh, I also have a phenomenal uh, reference library of colleagues. Um, sometimes people will call me and they'll say, this is it. And I will point them in the direction of the practitioner that I think is best suited to it. Um, because I, I obviously do not think that I am well suited to all conditions out there. Good for you. Wow. That is uh, beautifully said and good for you for having priorities to only limit the amount of people you're taking on in addition to your practice, because I think <laughs> it's very easy um, to, if you take every opportunity that comes your way, you oftentimes sacrifice your own personal health or the time spent with family. So good for you for having strong priorities. Thank you for chatting today. Thank you for being part of the Footner program. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation um, about food. And for those listening, hopefully that was a good intro, broad intro to kind of the topic of food. And Matt and I will be back at some point in the future and continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Nick. Oh, just give me one sec. I'll stop recording.